Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Culp. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I have combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Today's interview is with Christopher Brune Haran. His story is one of incredible loss and incredible love. Christopher and his husband, Jesse, decided they wanted to become fathers. They also decided they wanted to adopt. Well, the years that followed are full of twists and turns and ups and downs. It all starts with the day they got a phone call that there was a brand new baby boy who had no place to call home. Christopher speaks bravely about stereotypes, the misconceptions of two gay men on a quest to become fathers, and how the love of a child can ultimately bring down all those walls. I also learned a ton about the process of foster to adopt, which I think you will find equally interesting and inspiring. It is my great privilege to introduce you to Christopher Brune Haran. Christopher, welcome to All the Wiser. We're so happy to have you here today. Thank you. So today I really just want to dive in and thinking about sitting down in this conversation with you today, I really believe it's a love story and uh, and certainly a conversation of your journey of fatherhood and what it means to be a father. So first, let me let me back up before I do that, and then we'll sort of dive into to the bigger conversation. How would you describe yourself if you're introducing yourself? I would say I'm a husband. I would say I'm a father. I would say I'm a storyteller. I'm a writer. I would say that I'm gay. I wouldn't have always said that growing up, but I've learned to really own that and be proud of that in the world today. But definitely I would lead with that I'm a husband and I'm a father. I love that. <laughs> you did a beautiful job introducing yourself. <laughs> I do not need to tell our audience. You summed it up beautifully. All right. So did you always know that you wanted to be a father? No, not at all. In fact, my husband asked me on our first date how I felt about marriage and kids uh, it kind of came out of left field. I, at the time, there was talk that Prop 8 was going to be lifted, but Prop 8 was very much still in effect. Um, we were hiking Fryman Canyon. I remember he was ahead of me. We had his dog. He was good looking. And I, when he asked me that, I, I thought I heard him wrong uh, because I remember thinking, this is what someone's asking on a first date, how I felt about husband, you know, how I felt about marriage and kids. And um, I had always been in relationships where I was 
hoping for monogamy uh, or monogamous myself or at least striving toward it. So marriage was something I was excited to be having a conversation about, but I'd never really given a lot of thought to having kids. And here was this person asking me, so I had to answer. And the answer was? I, at that time, in that moment, I remember saying that I didn't want to have my own, that I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to bring a kid into the world. I felt that since I wasn't organically attracted to women sexually, that if I had children, it should be to help a child that was already existing as opposed to going through the process of maybe having my own biological kid or my husband's biological kid. I know a lot of people do that and I don't have anything against that. But in that moment, I remember just knowing that I didn't want to do that. Tell me about, you mentioned on the hike, but your first date with Jesse and when you knew you were in love. I fell in love with him really early on. Like we sort of clicked immediately. And uh, once we started, we really started. We actually got engaged on our one year anniversary. And so at what point does the conversation become real? There's an idea and a notion of, are we going to become fathers? Oh. And when, when does it get real? I would say it was about a year into our marriage, Jesse came home from a spin class uh, with a smile beaming, and he had just met a social worker named Jamie, and she was from a place called Vista Del Mar, and she specialized in finding, helping same-sex couples adopt children. I would say within two weeks, we were having coffee with her talking about it. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was pretty quick. But we're older too. So we knew that that we wanted to get moving on that. And then we then it was happening. Like one year into our marriage, we were meeting with Jamie. How old were you when you got married? I was in my forties, gosh, uh forty-five. So so young. Yeah. 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 Not too old. Not Come too on. Old. No, I'm fine. <laughs> I, I, I I'm fine. I just mean in the scheme of in the scheme yeah. of parenthood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, so fate happens at the spin class. Jamie is introduced into your life, and you guys are now actively engaged in this conversation around the idea of adopting. What is this time like, and what are you learning about the process? There's tons of questions on my part, especially. Uh, I was worried about, uh, was I too old? I was worried about uh, basically everything. I just wanted to know any possible thing they were they we found out that in those classes uh i learned about a term which i had never heard before and it's called foster to adopt and what that means what we were initially told that means is um there's children out there who have been taken from parents and there are some that seem more likely to be adopted than others. If you're going to foster a kid, everybody knows what that means. It means that you take a kid into your home and you help out hopefully while the biological parents are doing whatever they need to do uh, to fix why that child was taken away. Sometimes it's addiction issues or alcoholism or maybe it's domestic abuse. So they'll go off and learn about domestic abuse and take classes. And a lot of times the parents will do that And so the child will only be in a foster home for a certain amount of time, and then we'll go back. Foster to adopt is children who it looks like probably aren't going to go back to the parents for whatever reason. At the time, this sounded to us like this is what we're looking for. I always wanted to help out a kid, and at the same time, we want to adopt a kid. So if there's these children out there that could possibly be adopted, 
that sounded like what we wanted to do. And then we started taking classes, the eight-week class. And what's going on in the classes? We learned a lot of emotional stuff about what it really means when a child is taken away from a home. Uh, we learned, we, we saw videos of like older kids running from social workers, you know. Um, no matter what's going on in the home, the kids, this is what they know. So most of the time, they don't want to leave the home or they don't want to leave the parents. Uh, sometimes they do. But we learned about all of the... So you're saying like, for example, a kid in a physically, verbally, emotionally abusive home, mm -hmm. that yeah. is all they know. Right. So in spite of the constant abuse, that is their home. That is what they know. Yes. Right. And then also we learned about issues uh, or challenges that kids can come with. And we learned parenting technique. Like we learned skills about what, what, what would you do in this situation? Like I, we learned very early on, like what Jesse's skills were, what my skills were. And we, and we really learned around about the emotional background that they're coming from and what could happen and to prepare, prepare you as best that you can be prepared. So I would imagine there's this range of hope and excitement of what it's going to be. Mm -hmm. And also I would assume a lot of fear mm -hmm. about what it could be, right. what it may be. Right. What is that experience like for you? The high and the hope and the romantic notion and the, oh my gosh, what if it's this? So while we were taking the eight-week class and while we were preparing for it, you know, everybody just kept telling me, well, you know, you don't have kids and one day you're going to have a kid. It's not like where, you know, a woman is involved and she gets pregnant and you have nine months to sort of prepare for this. Like I knew like one day we were just going to have a child and everyone told me your life's going to change, you know, be prepared for that. And they were right. They were 100% right. It did. But it was kind of a great time period, though, because Jesse and I were doing it together. We would drive over to Vista del Mar. We would take this class. I remember we always stopped at this Mex Mexican restaurant on the way, and we'd have a taco. And it was like this kind of great thing that we were doing together. We talked about it a lot. We talked about the kind of kids we – the kind of parents we wanted to be. And Jesse's a minister, and he is really – just a really lovely guy. And we did this even with our marriage. Like we would think about, okay, what, what kind of marriage do we want to have? Who do we want to be in the world? Even just about our wedding ceremony, we would think, okay, what kind of ceremony do we want to have? What do we want people to feel? How do we want them to uh, experience our wedding? And we would like kind of think about that and focus on that and talk about that and then hopefully create that. Uh, we were doing the same thing with parenting. Like we would talk about like the kind of parents we want to be. So you're now taking these classes. So moving forward in this path that you have set out on together, at what point do things quickly become real? When you do this, you know, you have to go through a lot of background checks, which we did. And uh, really like serious background checks, which you can imagine and should be the way. Uh, so that started to happen. And then there was a lot of home checks. There was a lot of like, they came to our home and they went through our home. And then suddenly there were things that we needed, like uh, um, all of the medication in a, in a certain place and all of our knives in a certain place. And we needed uh, locks on bottom drawers. And suddenly we were childproofing our house. Uh, so it became real pretty quick. After we did all of the prerequisites that needed to happen, all of the classes and everything else, we were ready. At a certain point, they started asking us really serious questions about the kind of kid we wanted to have. And 
you want to sort of be like politically correct. But at the same time, I remember them saying to us, you need to be really honest with us because there are better parents for a kid. Like, don't tell us you want a kid that you really don't want. If you have an idea, like if you want a boy, don't say you want a a girl. If you want this, don't say you want that. If there's a certain race that for some reason, you know, you, you don't think you're equipped to handle or some situation that you're not equipped to handle, you need to let us know. And I remember we were like, wow, this is like, that's very intense stuff to be yeah. told. Because you want to believe you should just say, all we care about is a happy, healthy baby. That even that, like that was a real question because there are, uh, they, they would ask you about things like, how do you feel about a child that has been exposed to alcohol? How do you feel about a child that's been exposed while the mother was pregnant? Things like that. So you don't know, like, you know, you have to answer really about autism, all kinds of questions you have to answer. And mm-hmm. you have to be really honest about what you can handle and what you can't. And I remember Jesse and I really like talked about that and we said we were open to all races and we didn't really know what that meant. I would learn later what that really meant to say, to say that, but we meant it. We just were open to all races. And so we would take calls about any child. Jesse really wanted an infant. What, what does it mean? To be open to all races? Mm-hmm. It means that... Any child that becomes available, no matter the race, they'll call you and say, um, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll tell you, like, there's a black girl, there's yeah. a black boy, there's a Latin boy, there's a whatever it, it is. And I don't want to get ahead of myself, but what happened for us is that we became two Caucasian gay men working with a black mother. And so it was this amazing experience, but race was always in the mix, like from the very beginning. But then what happened was um, Jesse always wanted an infant. Uh, I kind of wanted an older kid, but we agreed to be open to both. And we were told that if you want an infant, that you should sign up for something called emergency placement, which is how infants usually come. And uh, because something drastic usually happens, obviously for an infant to be taken away or given away. And uh, that's what happened. We signed up for emergency placement. So we started to get calls about babies. So eventually you will become the parents of Caden. When is the first time you learn about Caden? My husband texts me. He says there is a baby boy that was born to a mother in Lancaster who had been exposed to crystal meth. He was healthy. He was her seventh child. Um, She was 27. And her other six children had been taken away and were being raised elsewhere, all because of problems related to drugs on the mother's part. So we also were told in that initial phone call that uh, she was black and that she was in Lancaster. It was a very quick thing. The baby was only, Caden was only two days old and they needed, he needed to be picked up from the hospital that day. So we were in Los Angeles. It was about two o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, Jesse, I, I, I said, I need a minute. He said, we, he goes, I'm going to give it to you, but we kind of don't have more than a minute. Like we have to call back within like 10 minutes. I said, okay. And I got off the phone and I, Remember, I went into a bathroom and I like really breathed and I, and I, all kinds of things are going on. Like you realize like, you know, 
You're thinking about race. You're thinking about being gay men. You're thinking about this, everything. You're thinking about crystal meth. You're thinking about being told that the baby appears to be healthy, but is the baby healthy and just everything. And uh, I'm also thinking the other six kids have been a, have, are elsewhere. This looks like a strong possibility. I called Jesse back and I said, um, what do you think? And he said, I, I think that we should go forward. And I said, okay. And we did. And um, we were, I went home. We stopped at the Target on La Cienega on the way to Lancaster and bought a child, a baby seat. I remember us running around that Target because up until that moment, we never knew the age of the child that we were going to get. So we never really knew what to buy. We were grabbing diapers and baby clothes and a child seat because we couldn't leave the hospital without one. And uh, we drove to Lancaster. We stopped at a gas station two exits away from the hospital. Jesse installed the car seat underneath the fluorescence of the mobile station. And the next thing I knew, we were meeting what would be our son. And what was that first moment? I mean, you have to walk me through seeing him, holding him. What happens when you walk into the hospital and it meet was, him? It was crazy windy. It was Antelope Valley Hospital. We got out of the car. The wind was blowing. It was crazy wind blowing. I was scared, nervous. But I remember really having this thought. I was like, this is what I know about Jesse and I, is that we're, we're capable. I really got it. Like the wind was blowing. There was something almost like like very large about it. I remember thinking like, there's a baby. I remember they told us there's a baby. He's being released from the hospital. He has nowhere to go. And there was something so powerful about that. And I knew that Jesse and I were capable. And I was like, no matter what, this kid needs help. And so a social worker who we never met before, a new social worker, she introduced herself to us in the parking lot. She said, I'm going to take you in. So she walks us down this long hall and uh, we are in the emergency room. Everybody's checking us out. All of the nurses, everybody like they don't, you know, they know we're here to get this baby and we're brought over and uh, we meet this baby boy. And you know what? It really is true. Like everything they tell you, everything, you know, every parent who ever said that something happens. And, and I remember when I wasn't a parent, I would think, yeah, right. Like whatever. But the minute I looked at this little baby, all I wanted to do was parent him. He was just looking up and he was beautiful and he was small and he was tiny and he needed help. And we just, we were just there, you know? And also, you know, there's always like this bitter, sweet thing going on too, because at the same time, like I knew that he had been taken from his mother, you know, and I'm, I'm not crazy. I'm very aware of like what a, a mother is to a child. Like I have an amazing relationship with my mother. I always have to this day. I talk to her like two, three times a day. She's in New York. So I know what that is, that relationship. And so at the same time, you know, I know he's been taken from his mother and I know that there's a mother somewhere having feelings about this, you know, but we, we fell in love with him. We, we were, I was scared. I remember there was a bunch of women there and I remember I very out loud, I said, okay, ladies, mothers, grandmothers, like weigh in, tell me right now, what do I need to know? Like I said, I made this announcement to all of the women and I remember this woman said, uh, I was holding him and I remember this woman said to me, uh, he ain't glass, meaning the way I was holding him was so fragile then. And I was like, okay. And that kind of made me realize like, okay, he's not glass, like relax a little bit. And uh, we were two men and we hadn't had this experience before and, but we were in it together and it was, it was beautiful. We were excited and scared and 
excited. And you wheeled out of the hospital with him. Yeah. Oh yeah. We. Him, right? Oh yeah. We. They. It was standard hospital procedure for the baby to leave with somebody in a wheelchair. So they put me in a wheelchair, and uh, that I. There's a picture of me being wheeled out, holding him in a wheelchair. Yeah. Just like the mother, like I, I was wheeled out, and we were brought. Uh, we brought him to the car, and again, I remember the wind was whipping, and I remember just thinking, like, I want to protect this child. We wanted to protect this child. And I know from bringing home a baby for the first time what those days and weeks are um, that follow. What was that experience for you and Jesse? It was, you know, that's where it's probably similar to everybody. I think that that's a universal feeling of uh, there's always wondering if you're doing it wrong, always kind of thinking you're doing it wrong. Uh, we, we had, you know, the sleepless nights, all of that stuff, uh, learning how to put on a diaper, learning uh, how to just be parents, feed him, burp him. You know, when you when there's uh, when there's not a mother in the picture, you're automatically using formula, how to use formula. And then I know you had touched on it a little bit, but your relationship with Caden's mom, when are you interacting with her? And talk to me about, about that connection and that relationship and what's going on there. Caden was taken for his mom, from his mom because at the hospital, I, don't, I, I think she told them that she had exposed him to crystal meth, that she had used crystal meth while she was pregnant. And uh, this was also in her background, so they knew that. So he was taken from her at the hospital. But that doesn't, that's not a, that's not a given. Like this was not necessarily meaning 100% that we were going to adopt this boy. In fact, we weren't sure who his dad was yet. We weren't sure if that was going to be a possibility of where he would go. Um, Right off the bat, we were told that we were going to have visits with uh, Caden's mom. Her name is Shakia. So we had no idea what that was going to be like. That was a very, on our way to the first one, uh, we had been told by the social worker that she didn't want her son with two gay guys. So there's there's a series of social workers, just so you know. There's the social worker, our social worker from Vista del Mar, but then Caden has a social worker as well. And Caden's social worker was also, his mom's social worker was in Lancaster. So we hadn't even met her yet. So we knew we were going to go to Lancaster to have this visit with Caden and his mom. And at first, we were offered to not go. They said, you know, if you want to not go, you can not go. But I said, no, I really wanted to meet her because I knew that if there was homophobia, I knew that the only chance we had of possibly taking that off the table was for her to meet us. I figured okay, maybe we won't be what she thinks we are, or maybe we'll be exactly what she thinks we are, but at least she'll see we're good parents and we Mm -hmm. care about him. And so maybe that will do something. And uh, that ended up being the case. Like we we went to Lancaster and uh, that's a very emotional thing. You go to a DCFS office. It's this kind of like awful government building. It was hot desert day by this point. We got there, we, you know, you go through a metal detector, you go inside and you're waiting. So it was me and Jesse waiting to meet a woman that we hadn't met before. And the only thing we knew about her was that she didn't want her kid with two gay guys. And we were very attached to her son at this point. It was two months into it. We loved him. It becomes emotional, you know? So 
she came in and I remember when she came in, she wasn't what I expected. And I felt guilty about that. Like you, all your questions come up about like, why did I have any expectation on her? You know, but you automatically have expectation given what you've been told. So I remember she came in and she was even sort of like stately. She was dressed well and she came in and I remember thinking like, I couldn't, my immediate first thought was why isn't this boy with his mother. That was my first thought. And she took him from us. And I remember not knowing how that was going to make me feel. Yeah. And um, she took him from us. But the minute she did, I was like, oh, this makes total sense. Like she's his mother. Like she's held him in a way that we didn't hold him. And he responded. And I remember thinking, wow, this is really something. And right away in that first meeting, I said to her, I said, I know you don't want your son with two gay guys. Let's talk about that. And uh, she didn't say anything. She just looked at me. And I said to her, you know, we're in love. We're married. I said, uh, Jesse's a minister. I said, he has spiritual faith. I said, I have spiritual faith as well. I said, we're not going on any Atlantis cruises anytime <laughs> soon. I said, like, we're not party boys or anything like that. I said, we really thought long and hard about wanting to be parents. And she listened. She didn't say one word, but she listened. And I could see her soften to us. And by the end, uh, we hugged her when we left. And uh, it was emotional. Like, you know, it was emotional for her, obviously. She was really good with her son. And uh, that was the first meeting. They changed over time. But that was our, we had weekly meetings with her. And so that's all um, a process deciding whether she will be able to get him back, able to get him back. There was a lot of things that she was supposed to be doing, you know, and, and, uh, she wasn't, you know, classes, sobriety wise stuff. She had other kids, you know, who were, uh, that the social worker was also working with and in, uh, that reported to her. And so we knew that she wasn't doing certain stuff. It's a very strange predicament because I think I said before, what they don't tell you about foster to adopt is if when you really want to adopt, there's this part of you that you need the parent to fail in order for you to be able to adopt. And that didn't feel good on our part. Like we really loved Caden. And at the same time, we didn't, we didn't want to sit around hoping that like she didn't pull it together you know? Yeah. Rooting for his mom to fail. That couldn't feel right. It didn't feel yeah. right. And we never really did that. Like we both right away, we sort of made this commitment to sort of like, just show up, you know, suit up, show up as they say, like in recovery and, and let the chips fall where they may. And there was always something coming out of left field. There was, uh, you know, suddenly somebody, there was a possible other father. There, there was always this uncertainty, but there was two guys who could be his dad. And then one of the guys who could be his dad, his parents wanted Caden if he was the dad. So we just were always going on this, like there was going to be a DNA test by the judge. And then we were trying to find out who his dad was. So every day, Jesse and I would have to remind each other, like, we have no control over this. We just have to keep showing up. We just have to keep showing so up. So you really have to find peace with that <clears throat> incredible uncertainty. Yeah. If and you, if you your... want to do it this way, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But outside all of these, you know, the meetings and everything's going on within the system and all the action and activity that that takes at home, you are forming a family and a bond and raising a little infant baby. I mean, that sort of 
piece of it must have been extraordinary. It was absolutely extraordinary. I uh, I couldn't wait to be around him. Like when I was away from him, I couldn't wait to be back around him. That thing happened. I wouldn't say I was surprised at my emotional involvement with him, but we just both, like he's, he will always be our first child, like our first son. Like he, he was our son. Like even, even, you know, we were all he knew at, at, you know, we brought him home at two days. So he bonded with us. We bonded with him. Even in these visits with his mom, I mean, as time went on, things happened and she stopped showing up and then the visits became farther apart. And then for a while they were canceled because she didn't show up. And then there was a visit that he clearly was wanting us during the visit. And so it becomes, you know, there's a lot of emotional stuff that happens. But while we were at home, I mean, we just, we just loved this kid. I mean, we, we all did just, he's a minister. So, you know, where he is a minister, like the whole community became involved. Like I have tons of friends, uh, tons of friends, like in the storytelling community, like everyone I knew was invested in this boy. And Jesse and I, you know, here we were, we were these two men and we would go out into the world and we would have our son with us. And People were excited about our story. Like people wanted to know our story. Like, who is this boy? Is this your boy? And how did you get this boy? And I never had anything but love thrown at us out in the world. Like people just were always about, isn't this fantastic? And we just loved every minute of it. We loved being with him. We loved watching him grow. We loved feeding him. We loved every single thing. Like every moment was a joy. And eventually he gets sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, what happened was when he was like five and a half months old, he got a fever one day. We brought him immediately to the emergency room and they told us that he had something called an adenovirus, which is basically the common cold, but that's serious in an infant. So we, he's brought to the pediatric wing for three days. We don't leave his side it's awful. Whenever a baby is in the hospital, it's awful. It's awful to watch him get an IV. It's awful to see them wake up in the middle of the night. It's just, just the whole experience when they're that small and they're hooked up to machines. It's just awful. After three days, they let him go home and uh, we thought everything was okay. And then what happened was when he was seven and a half months old, one day he he just wasn't keeping his formula down. We took him to urgent care. They told us he had a stomach bug. I think this was on a Thursday. Um, another day went by, we knew something wasn't right. Friday, Jesse brought him to the emergency room. The nurse said, you don't want to bring the baby into the hospital. I'm a mother. I'm a grandmother. You don't want to bring him around all these germs. He had his head on Jesse's shoulder and, um, she said, look at him. He just wants to be with his daddy. So she sent us home. And then Monday morning we woke up early and he couldn't stop. He wouldn't stop crying. And we knew that this was, you know, a reason to go to the emergency room um, I had to go to work. I said to Jesse, I'll join you in like an hour. I just got to get a couple things covered and I'll join you. Like 45 minutes later, Jesse called me and he said, you need to get here right now. You need to walk out the door. And he was crying. And, uh, I ran to my car and I drove to the hospital and, you know, the next, you know, hour and a half was, I mean, this from that point on, that's, that's just when it started to be this complete nightmare. Like, I was brought immediately to Jesse in the emergency room. Jesse told me he had stopped breathing. 
suddenly there was a cardiologist and she said that a test had been run and that the heart vessels around his heart were 10 times larger than they were supposed to be. I had no idea what this meant. We had no idea what this meant. Like we thought he had a stomach bug two hours ago. And I, we were like, what does this mean? And she said, we're all going upstairs. And uh, I just remember that like it was, I'll never forget that. Like we just were being wheeled through the hospital. You have this very tiny baby on a bed that he's way too small for. We went upstairs to the pediatric unit. It was completely empty and dark. And then suddenly it was completely alive and there were people everywhere and everyone was working on him. And uh, we were in the doorway watching and I just, you know, they kept coming over. Social workers would come over and they would tell us what was going on. And we were just suddenly in this horrible nightmare where they were just talking to us about horrible things and, you know, putting a tube down his throat, having to ventilate him. He couldn't breathe, all this stuff. And it happened both very fast and excruciatingly long. And then uh, we watched as they just fought to save his life and um, they failed. And I knew they were failing. There was a point where I just remember watching and thinking there was too many people working on him and he was too small and I just knew that I just knew and I didn't want to admit it and you know even still to this this day I just it was just something that I can't even I couldn't even imagine could ever happen it was the last thing you know there were so many ways that we thought we might lose Caden uh but that was never one of them and uh I first heard the word Kawasaki disease then. Um, the cardiologist said, you know, he had something called Kawasaki disease. I mean, it was so foreign to me. I had no idea what that meant. He probably had it at five months old when they thought he had an adenovirus, but because it looked like other things, that's what they treated. And he was getting better, so they never had any reason to think that it wasn't that. But it was, it was I'm not sure how much you want me to talk about it, but it was, I mean, it was... He died in front of us. Afterward, you know, there's something that happens when a baby dies in a hospital that doesn't happen when you lose any other loved one, uh, not your spouse or a sibling or anyone, a friend. And what happens is afterward, they present your baby to you to hold. And I remember very clearly, like they very carefully, almost ceremoniously wrapped this baby, which was the light of our life, Caden, in a hospital blanket, and they presented him to us and is the most, it's a moment that forever I'll remember because, you know, from the moment, as any parent will tell you, from the moment you're first handed your child, you know, they squirm, they move, you know, it's all about supporting their head, supporting their neck. So when they're handing him to you and that's over, it's, it's like just organically like the most unnatural thing in the world. And uh, I didn't know what, we didn't even know what to do. Like suddenly this room with all this activity was being stripped. It was like a Greek stage and everything was being wheeled away. And we were standing here with him and um, we were given, they were very good to us. They gave us two rooms for four hours and loved ones came, very close people came. And uh, we did our best to say goodbye to our son. I can't fathom. It was, um, 
you know, that time period, like, and what happens in the room and afterward, I remember when it became like we were there for too long. And I remember I said to Jesse, like, we have to leave now. It feels awful to, to be here with him because he's really gone. And I remember like knowing we were going to walk out that door and leave him there and, uh, and not wanting to leave and not wanting to stay and being on that threshold of that. And I remember walking down and standing in the parking lot afterward. And we, and, and we walked in thinking he had a stomach bug and we left without our son. So we talked about the um, days and weeks that followed bringing Caden home and into your home and beginning your life with him. This is obviously on the other end of that spectrum. What were the days and weeks that followed after you left the hospital that day? There's a feeling, you know, like when something like this happens, I remember having this thought in the hospital. There was a moment it was where it was all happening and all of this was going on. And, and I, I heard someone say, we're going to call it. And it was just like they do on TV. And I said to Jesse, they're going to call it. Like I was horrified. And they did. And suddenly there was a time of death and they were calling his time of death and all the machines like started to fade out. And I was like, oh my God, like it was just like, I couldn't believe it was happening. And I mean, I didn't know what to do. Like I remember I walked over and I pounded my fist on the wall, but it was more because I felt like that was what was called for. It wasn't that I was connected to it. It was almost like some sort of theatrics was called for. And I remember saying, we thought he had a stomach bug. We were told he had a stomach bug. And, uh, but not even really feeling that because I knew that everybody had done what they had thought was best. I knew that. I just knew it was this horrible tragedy. But in that moment, I remember thinking like, in this weird way, I could do anything now. Like, and it would be explained through this overwhelming grief. Like the most crazy behavior would be explained because of what had happened. They'd say, oh, he did this because of, he was so devastated. And I knew when we left the hospital, I was like, I have to ask for help immediately. I have to get as many people around me. And we just started calling people and we said, this is what's happened. We need help. But we just, our families descended on us. We, we needed help. You know, we needed people around us and uh, we had a memorial service. We rented a room at Plummer Park. There was like a lot of people who came, like everybody in our community came and uh, his life affected and touched so many people. There were so many people who were on our side. They just, I don't mean on our side, like just like they were rooting for these two gay dads to do well, to be parents, to, to do it right to to have a happy child. And then when they saw Caden, he was just a joy-filled child. So everybody was like, they were touched by his light. And it sounds cliche, but he was just this baby that, you know, brought these people together that weren't supposed to be together. Even his mom, you know, I, I, I do want to say, I, I want to say that because it's important to say that uh, we didn't hear from her for a long period of time. And then when she resurfaced, she wanted to have a funeral of her own. And uh, we were like, we couldn't believe it. We were, our first initial response was like, I cannot believe this. But she wanted to have like an open casket funeral for him in Lancaster. And she wanted to have him buried in the ground. And I had offered to have him cremated and share the ashes with her, but she didn't want to do this. And so she still had the rights to him. And Mm -hmm. so this happened. But 
I remember instead of fighting it, I said to Jesse, we have to help her. And we did. We brought her all these pictures and she asked us for money and we gave her money and we weren't going to go. And then uh, we didn't go for like the viewing and she called us from the viewing and she was like, where are you? There's no one here, just me. And we were so heartbroken. And so the next day we went to the funeral and Jesse ended up being the minister saying his mass. We watched him be lowered into the ground and we met her and all the rest of her children and her family. And she could not have been more respectful. She introduced all her kids to us and they like said hello to us and met us and Afterward, we were in the parking lot and she told us that she knew that we were his parents. She knew that we gave him a life that uh, she couldn't have given him and that she wished we were her parents as well. So this baby brought these people together who were never supposed to meet, changed everybody's perception because I had perceptions of her. She had perceptions of us. And we had this experience and it formed this sort of family still to this day. I think of her and I think that she is his mother. And uh, I don't know how this would have played out. I, I didn't expect it to play out like this for sure. It was the weeks after though were, they were hard. They were devastating. Like we missed him every single second. You know, I would wake up at night thinking I heard him cry. I would get up, I would be half asleep. I would walk in and I would remember People were wonderful though. You know, you think sometimes people say Los Angeles is cold or Los Angeles is this and people came out of the woodwork, people I didn't even know, people who lived like a couple blocks over who saw me walking on a regular basis with the carriage or saw Jesse with the car seat and they just would come and they would just say, we heard, we're sorry. And um, it was, people were really amazing. Was there a darkest moment, a darkest day during that period? Definitely that moment when they handed him to us in the hospital. Uh, I kept reflecting on that afterward. I would sit at my table in the morning, like having coffee for weeks afterward, and I would remember what just what he looked like. But afterward, I would reflect on that. And I was smart enough to know that we needed grief counseling. And so we found a grief counselor who, we just found a group. I remember somebody asked me, a therapist who we know, who just happens to live in our building, said to me, is there anything I can do for you? And I said, you can find a group for parents who've lost small children. And he did. He like, that day he was like, this is a group for people who have lost small children. And we went, I just knew I needed something very specific. And it was just this very sad thing. And, and in it, I missed him all the time. Like I, I was always playing him music and, and, and certain songs. And I had told myself that this song he liked, like, and I, and I would hear that song and it would break my heart, you know? And so just everywhere I went, there he was. And, um, it was grief, like real grief. And I, and I had, I had lost my dad and I'd experienced grief, but there was something about the surprise and the shock and the unnaturalness of a, of a small baby passing away that I just, I know it happens all the time, but it was something that I never even considered. What were the things that were the most healing for you during this time? Talking to people, definitely talking to people. I just intuitively knew that anything that was going on in me, I had to get it out of me. Like it wouldn't make it necessarily go away, but it would shine light on it. It would lessen it a bit. So I just, 
Um, I remember the grief counselor said to me, you know, you don't have to get out of bed. She said, you can, uh, I didn't get out of bed for a whole year when I lost my daughter, she told me. And I remember, <laughs> I remember thinking, well, you must have more money than I do because I can't <laughs> not get out of bed for a year. But I, I understood what she meant though. But I was afraid of that. I was, af- I was afraid of being too alone with my feelings. I know Jesse is a minister and you've talked about your own faith. What role did faith play in your life during this time of loss? I was raised Catholic. My dad was a very strong Catholic. Uh, so I was raised with God, uh, the God that I think about today. Uh, it's not the Catholic God, but here's the thing about like, like my husband and I, we definitely have very different beliefs. Um, I'm sober, I'm in recovery. So, uh, I've always believed in just like sort of acting as if I might not have a very clear idea about what, um, meditating on or what I'm praying to, but I believe in the process of prayer. I believe in the process of meditation. I know that I'm better calmed down than I am worked up. I I believe in the power of what I say I make happen, uh, that my thoughts create my life and my thoughts create my environment. So I was really careful when this happened with Caden. Like I didn't want to go into self-pity I didn't want to fall into like, oh, this happened to us. And I wanted to be grateful for the experience of him. Now, listen, it took me, like, I still am incredibly sad. I will always, there's a part of me that will always be in that room and will always be sad about Caden. But I also am very aware that seven and a half months, he was loved beyond belief. I mean, his own mother said, I'm glad he was with you. And I know that all these people were affected by him and impacted by him. And so I don't know why this happened, but I know that I'm glad he was with us. So is there a point when you lose a child, um, your only child, first baby boy, that you decide, all right, we are, you know, going to pack up the nursery and begin this new chapter? Is there, is there a a moment in time that you look back on as a passage or how does that work? I can't wrap my head around the end and the beginning, if that makes sense. So the immediate concern was, I would always think I want to take really good care of Jesse, whatever that means, even just making sure he has a nice coffee in the morning and there's iced coffee in his jug in the fridge or whatever, like small things. But so I knew we were going to take good care of each other. As far as packing up the nursery, I mean, we had a room that was Caden's and he had a playpen and a crib. And and after a while, we did pack it up. It didn't mean that we packed up the idea of having kids. It was a conversation we actually didn't have because I, 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 I knew Jesse wanted to do it again. And I, I just couldn't think about it right then. A long period of time went by, and I don't know how long, but like a year and then the social workers, like we worked with these social workers, they started asking us if we wanted to do it again. They liked us. We were we were good parents. They We were considered like people that people wanted to place kids with. And at first I said no. I just was like no. I just kept saying no. And then one day, but they would ask. They would say there's a boy, there's a girl, there's a toddler. And I would say no, no, no. And then one day I said uh, 
to Jesse. I said, maybe if there was an infant boy. But I said it more because that's a really crazy thing to say. Like, if you know about this world, like, you don't say it like that, number one. It's almost tacky to say it like that. Babies don't just come like that. They don't come on trees like that. And, you know, but I said it. And then they called two days later and they were like, there's a baby boy. He's being released from the hospital. He's eight weeks old. He has nowhere to go. And it was a severe child abuse case. And uh, we were having that conversation again about like, should we do this? And I said, no. I said to Jesse, I said, this is too dark. I said, the other thing was, you know, we knew his mom had addiction issues and addiction is a disease. This is, there's something way more darker here. And I remember Jesse said to me, he has nowhere to go. And I was like, that hit me, you know, and we talked about it and we, we brought him home. And, uh, 10 days later, we brought his two-year-old brother. So this is where we are now. Uh, we have uh, an almost three-year-old and a one-year-old that was uh, in March. So where are we now? February. So it was almost a year ago. And now we have uh, two boys at our house. And it's uh, two boys, two grown men, and uh, a male dog. <laughs> so we are in dire need of some... Female, Some female energy, a cat or something. We definitely need a female cat or a bird or something. Immediately. Uh, immediately. But uh, yeah, that's, that's where we're at now. We got the call that uh, Victor was available and we knew that Tony, that he had a brother and we knew, we just knew from our experiences, they're always trying to keep kids together. So we knew that, that, we knew that they were going to, if we were going to take one, they were going to ask us at least to take the other because that's always an issue. They want to keep kids together. Did it take, I would imagine, the courage to open your heart up again in that way? Did you feel that you were guarded at all or? You know, here's the thing. It took me a while to say yes, but I dare anyone to not love a baby that's in front of you that needs love. I mean, you can't help but love a baby. I wanted to be the experience of Caden. I always say he cracked me open. He opened me up in ways like I didn't even know I was possible to, to feel what I felt while he was alive, while I was parenting him afterward. Like I had no idea that I had the capacity to love like this, to care like this, to caretake like this. And, um, so then, you know, when a baby is in front of you, you know, there, I, I don't see how you could be protective. Like I couldn't be, and I didn't want to be, I wanted to, if I was going to do it, I wanted to give what I knew that baby deserved. I didn't want to in any way withhold. So no, a long-winded way of saying no. And was, you, you talked about the abuse and coming from abusive homes and that was completely new. Is that aspect of it, how do you process that and what fears and realities are surrounded by that? We were brought this baby that was brought to the hospital with 15 fractures when he was five weeks old broken arm, broken femur, fractured ribs, all kinds of awful things that you could never imagine a baby being done to a baby. And, um, and so 
you just want to make sure that you're doing right by this baby. And there was an older kid who was two, who his older brother was two and, and didn't have any broken bones, but we had no idea what the scars were that he had because he couldn't talk yet. When we brought them both into our home, you know, there was uh, night terrors, uh, you know, the older kid would have bad dreams and have night terrors. And, you know, we just knew right away that we wanted to create this environment of security, of safety, of always being there when they cried, of always being gentle, of always being safe, of always, you know, creating a space that was just filled with love. And it's worked. Like, that's the thing that, that, like, we live in a city where, there's so much resources and so much stuff available, and um, and if you if you can do it and you can show up for it, it works. I mean, it really works. Like it builds strong, healing love and bonds. So, where are you now legally in the process of adopting the boys? We want to adopt them. We're moving toward adopting them. It takes a long period of time. Uh, the parents are reluctantly. Uh, not in the picture. They want to be in the picture, but they're both in jail. They're in jail for felony child abuse to the kids. We are about to uh, have a hearing where the parents' rights will be taken away. We are working with an adoption social worker and uh, the, everybody is moving toward us adopting them. That's what everybody wants. It's what we want and uh, it's what everybody else wants. But it's uh, it's a strange place to be because the... You know, their family doesn't want that. That's not what they want. But it's what's happening. We talked earlier about what it truly means to foster, to adopt. And hearing you, I know as a mother of three kids, just what it takes to be a parent on so many levels, right? Raising raising human beings in the world and all of the heartache and heartbreak and love and joy and everything that comes with that. But hearing you share, obviously, not only what you have been through with Caden, but this process of foster to adopt and the added layers and, and hearing all of the layers emotionally and time and physically and appointments that come with it is just extraordinary. So for you, what in this process is the most beautiful? When I keep my focus on the kids, that's the most beautiful. The two, all three of these boys, Caden and the two boys that we have now, they just, they're kids. They need love. They need security. They need safety. They need parks. They need air. They need to be, have someone answer when they cry. They need uh, to be cared for. And when you give them that, they give it back to you. I mean, they're, we are so bonded with all three of these boys, we were so bonded with Caden and we're so bonded with the two that we have now. And uh, it's just the moments, like when you walk in the room and, and somebody screams daddy and when they run and they grab your leg, it's that same stuff that happens with any parent. When you share your story and you talked early on about intention and really, what do you hope it is that people take away? What is What is the gift or the takeaway you hope in sharing it? I just want people to be grateful for their life and grateful for the moment that they're in right now and the kids and the family and the people they have around them and to just know that I'm just like them. What do you do to honor Caden's life? Mm. We talk about him a lot. You know, we definitely talk about him with Jesse's mom a lot. We're very aware of him. We've told the other 
kids that we have now about him. We have a big picture in our house with him. I'm doing this podcast right now. I tell stories about him. I share the experience of him all the time. I recently called his mom's social worker and I said, I don't know where she's at in the world right now, but I asked if there was anything that we could do to help her. I'm very aware that he's got a mom out there and she's still out there. And I'd like to say that we go to his grave. Uh, You know, we just had a conversation that we hadn't been there in a while and we need to do that. But we have gone to his grave and brought flowers and had that sort of traditional thing. But we talk about him. You know, Jesse and I talk about him all the time. That's a fear of mine. I I don't ever want him to be forgotten. What is your greatest hope for your boys? Oh, that they like me, <laughs> that, that they like us, that they, that they are, that they grow up with a strong sense of self, that they're kind. I want them to be kind. I want them to be kind to each other. I want them to be kind to other people. And I just want them to have a strong sense of self. I just want them to live in a world that is environmentally sound. I want, uh, you know, what everybody else wants really, but I want them to be I want them to like Jesse and I. I want them to be happy that they're our sons, and I want them to be kind. Throughout this experience, is there something you've learned about yourself that you didn't know before? I'm a lot less selfish than I thought I was. I'm proud that I'm not as selfish as I thought I was. When when Jesse asked me that question on the first date, that was my fear. Like, you know, I've just lived this life where like, I go and I meet my friends and I'm definitely the guy who went and met my friends in Fire Island at beach houses and, and sort of like just lived my life. So my first thought was, God, am I the guy who could be a good parent? And uh, I'm a lot less selfish than I thought I was. And I'm actually a really good parent. I can tell. <laughs> um, all right. So we make it fun at the end and add with a little rapid fire. Oh, good. All right. Uh, good. Cause I've been very serious. Okay. <laughs> Your favorite thing about your husband? He always sees the best in me. He really believes in me, uh, even when I question myself. The worst job you've ever had? It was also the best job I ever had, but I was a garbage man. I love that. What supply in your house is currently running low? (laughs) Paper products. We don't have napkins. We definitely need wipes. We always need wipes. I have have to stop at the drugstore on the way home to get wipes. I'll remind you on the way out. Um, What is one item you could never live without? My books, my Kindle, my books, reading. The thing you have done in life that you are most proud of? I mean, saying yes to Caden saying yes to um, Victor and Tony. Amen. Amen. And um, if people want to find you, is there anywhere online, social media, where they can tune in to learn more about you? Sure. You can go to uh, ChristopherBruinHaran.com. I'm also uh, Christopher Bruinharan on Facebook. I'm Mr. Chris Haran on Twitter. Uh, I'm I'm not that great on Twitter. Actually, I shouldn't say that. But the website for sure, ChristopherBruinHaran.com. Great. We'll be on it, checking it out. Thank you. Thank you, Christopher. 
Today's interview with Christopher supports Inspire. Inspire envisions a world where every LGBTQ person has an opportunity to belong to a loving and non-judgmental spiritual community. They are doing really different, interesting, and important work in the world. And you can check them out at www.inspirespiritualcommunity.org. Thanks so much for listening. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to All the Wiser Podcasts. See you next time. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.